We're starting on the uh, Elijah series tonight. Um, so, the Old Testament. And, uh, oh. Right, it's like Paul's while everyone, uh, for those of you who have got the right half, uh, 1 Kings, if you'll just be finding 1 Kings, which is probably about a third of the way through the Old Testament. One Kings, and uh, for the moment you find chapter 16. Uh, so One Kings, chapter 16. Now, in actual fact, tonight the the part of the Bible that we're going to cover doesn't actually, you know, mention Elijah at all because uh, we're having by way of introduction and sort of like giving you the background, uh, you know, that like the scene into which Elijah was was kind of raised up and uh, but just for the time being uh, have 1 Kings 16 and just stick your finger in verse 25 alright because we're going to be uh, reading through that section in a few moments but let me just give you a quick idea of the historical context of this um, Israel as God's people had known the real height of glory during the reign of Solomon you remember King David, a man after God's own heart, and then his son, all right, took over, and you had the reign of Solomon. And in all the years that God's people, you know, sort of all the years that Israel had existed and been called by, <laughs> by God, I was going to say, by God, it was the reign of Solomon where for the first time Israel substantially came into the blessings that God had promised them if they were faithful. So the reign of Solomon was a real highlight for Israel. God's blessing was upon them, there was prosperity, etc, etc, alright. So the reign of Solomon saw the zenith so far in history of what Israel, you know, really receiving the blessing of God and living in faithfulness to her. Now, it's incredibly significant that the period of history that we're dealing with in the life and times of Elijah is merely a century later. That's all. Merely about a hundred years later. And I'll tell you, things had changed. From the height of glory and blessing, by a hundred years later, the first thing that had happened was that the nation had had civil war and divided into two. So in actual fact, Israel was no longer at this point one nation. It divided into two. There were so many disagreements because you had tribes that settled the promised land in the south and you had tribes that settled the promised land in the north and uh, they were kind of one entity and there was all kinds of falling out and division set in and there were rebellions and, and things like that and it, it, it was a real mess. So at this point the nation has divided into two kingdoms and as we're going to see the glory of the Lord has departed from God's people and uh, what we're going to be presented with is in actual fact a real mess. So from the height of God's blessing upon his people, merely a hundred or so years later, we're going to see the kind of mess 
that they were in. Now, we're going to be concerning ourselves with the northern kingdom, all right, which was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, all right, but Elijah was raised up to deal with situations in the northern kingdom or Israel. So at this point in Israel's history, Israel was divided into two nations, Israel the north and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Now, you should have your uh, finger in 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 25. And uh, this is the background of the years immediately preceding Elijah being raised up and coming on the scene. Uh, we're actually going today uh, sort of like to cover uh, really, you know, down to verse 34, the whole of of this chapter. Uh, Elijah makes his appearance in the next chapter, chapter 17 verse 1. We won't be there till next week, uh, you know, but to give you an idea of the background. So let's, let's first of all read verse 25. Omri, now this is the king of Judah, Israel, sorry. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all who were before him. Now here's a king of the northern kingdom, all right, just a few years, this is only a few years before Elijah comes onto the scene. His name is Omri. Here he is, the king, the leader of God's people, and we read here that he did more evil than all who were before him. So at this point in Israel's history, they now have their worst king ever. And of course, one of the things that the Bible says is that good leadership is a blessing, but bad leadership is a curse. And here, Israel had its worst king ever. And uh, let's just, walk, uh, you know, sort of read through. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins which he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And then in verse 27 and 28 and 29, it just talks about, you know, sort of various things in regards to Omri. So we can dispose of him, Omri, the worst king Israel had ever had. Now let's go down to verse 30. <coughs> and Ahab, now Ahab is the king we are interested in. This guy is the king of Israel during the time that Elijah was raised up. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all that were before him. So Omri has been the worst king ever. His son, he dies, his son takes over, like father, like son. Ahab was an even worse king than Omri. Omri was the worst, most evil, uh, rebellious, anti-God king that Israel had ever had. All right? Now, they've got his son, and he was even worse. All right? You see, the graph here is it's not going up, is it? It's whoa, descending from a great height very, very quickly. Verse 31, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was one of the previous kings who set the trend in idolatry and deserting the Lord, you see. And it's saying, uh, you know, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. <coughs> now here Ahab, as the king of Israel, marries a Sidonian woman 
called Jezebel. Now, we're going to be seeing a lot about her as we proceed through this series, but for the time being, let's just establish that she was a Gentile. Now, it was forbidden by God in the law of Moses for Jews to marry Gentiles unless a Gentile had become what they called a proselyte. A proselyte was a Gentile who had come into the Judaistic faith, who accepted that the Lord God of Israel was God, all right? So a Gentile could become a Jew in faith, and then it was all right for another Jew to marry them. But it was absolutely forbidden for God's people, for an Israelite, to marry a Gentile unless the Gentile had converted to Judaism. And as we will see later, Jezebel most certainly hadn't. And as a result of marrying him, uh, sorry, <laughs> marrying her, uh, she was the daughter of Ethbaal, we'll see a bit about him in a, a few weeks as well. But as a result of this marriage, Ahab, he's got all the idolatry uh, that Jeroboam passed down to Ahab's father Omri, and, and, and now Ahab is doing what his father did, and now he adds to all that idolatry, all these gods that he's worshipping, he now adds to that by turning to the god of his new wife, the god Baal. And as we will eventually see, Baal was the most disgusting, evil and debauched idol that the ancient world knew. And we'll pick up bits and pieces about him. So what we have here is, is absolutely, this is outrageous, all right? We see here God's people now their king going into idolatry. Let's, let's read verse 32. And he, Ahab, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So, you know, sort of now Ahab has a temple raised up to this, this god Baal. Um, uh, in verse, verse 33, And Ahab made an Asherah. Now, an Asherah was either a tree or a pole. And uh, it, was, it was something that you worshipped. It represented a god. So where you get in the Old Testament reference to an Asherah, what you've got there is an idol in the shape of a tree or a pole that, 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 that they bowed down and worshipped in, in utter disobedience to the first commandment in the law of Moses. And, uh, and so we read that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So we have here, truly, Israel has got the worst king ever. And as a nation, and remember, Israel were God's people, we have here a picture of God's people at their lowest. Let's just read verse 34, very interesting. In his days, or in the days of Ahab, Hyle of Bethel, this would have been one of the, you know, kind of high up guys, and what we're going to see that he did, he could have only done with Ahab's backing. Hyle of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, we're going to see there's something tremendously significant here. In the days of Ahab, Ahab, as the king of Israel, allows one of his subjects to rebuild Jericho. 
Now, to see the significance, turn back into Joshua. The book of Joshua, which is a few books before, and if you find chapter 6. Joshua, chapter 6. <coughs> now, what's happened here? As God brought Israel out of Egypt, remember, they were in bondage, Egyptian slaves and that, and God brings them out and they go through the wilderness for the 40 years and stuff like that, and Moses dies, and then Joshua takes over from Moses as the leader of God's people. And uh, Joshua is the one who leads them into the Promised Land. So they go across the Jordan, all right, and then they have to press in and remove the Canaanites from the land, okay? Now, the first battle they had to fight was the Battle of Jericho, all right? And Jericho was absolutely destroyed in that battle. Now, let's read, you should have your finger in Joshua chapter 6, and we'll just read verse 26. Now, look at this. Joshua laid an oath upon them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man that rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now, what we have here is that Joshua, as the leader of God's people at that time, and obviously as a recognised prophet, just as Moses has been, here declares an oath, a prophetic oath, a message here straight from God. And it is a message that Ahab would have been familiar with. Because although in the time of Elijah, obviously the Old Testament wasn't completed because they were only like halfway through its history, nevertheless, the written documents were there. I mean, Ahab would have had the writings of Moses. What we, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they'd have had Joshua, can you see? So Israel would have known about the prophecy through um, Joshua here. And it's God forbidding his people ever to rebuild Jericho. Jericho was the first city to be taken in the battle for the promised land. And God has told them, destroy it utterly. And then he says, you will never, ever rebuild it. Now, here we have a straight commandment from God. And for Ahab, it would have been in black and white in what bits of the scriptures he had. So, what we have here under the rule of Ahab is Jericho being rebuilt and in um, Jericho being rebuilt in absolute defiance of God's written word. Now, can you see the point? Now, the thing is that Hiel, this curse about, you know, sort of like his first two sons dying, Hiel rebuilds Jericho, and indeed he loses his sons. Now, that verified all right, the prophecy. Now then, one might think that, okay, Ahab, he allows Jericho to be rebuilt, and uh, the bloke rebuilds it and his two sons die just like the scripture said. You'd think that might bring them to repentance, wouldn't you? But it didn't. It didn't. So that what we've got here to give you the picture is that we have God's people and the leadership of God's people here 
at a time when they are in outright disobedience to the revealed word of God. Can you see? Rebuilding Jericho. They had the Ten Commandments, they had the commandments about the idolatry, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They knew about that and they had the Old Testament scripture, the curse on Jericho, don't rebuild it. And yet, can you see, they go and they just kind of, they're in absolute disobedience to the revealed word of God. Now, what I believe that we have here, and indeed the reason why we're going to be doing the ministry of Elijah, is that I feel that we have here an extremely good parallel of three things. And it's these three things that really we're going to be examining as we go through Elijah's life. Firstly, we have here an extremely good parallel of the state and condition of God's people today, the Church of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I think this is an excellent parallel to. Secondly, we're going to see that as we go through the life of Elijah that we have a really good parallel to how it is that God cleans the mess up, i.e what God wants to do about the church. Because as we're going to see, God doesn't just leave his people Israel in a mess like this. He moves, he acts. He wants to get it all cleaned up. And exactly the same way, God doesn't want you know, the church of Jesus Christ to be you know, the mess that it is today. He wants to move to clean it up. And the second parallel is that we're going to see what it is that God does, you know, what he wants to do today in regards to changing the way that his people are in exactly the same way that he moved all these hundreds of years ago. And then the third thing to bear in mind that this is a parallel of in Elijah is that we're going to see how he prepares and deals with the people that he uses to clean up the mess. So can you see the three parallels that you must bear in mind as we go through this series? We have a parallel of the condition of the people of God today. We have a parallel of how it is God moves to clean the mess up. We're going to see what it is he wants to do about his people today. And then thirdly, we're going to be seeing how he prepares and deals with the individuals that he's going to use in order to, you know, clean things up. But before we go any further, <coughs> I've got to lay some ground rules. Um, I haven't really done this in prior studies that we've done here, but for this series we've got to lay some ground rules because um, there's a potential danger in doing a series such as we are going to be doing based on the Old Testament. Now, let me explain. I've said before that... Um, that you can think of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament in this way. The New Testament is, if you like, doctrine. The Old Testament is the doctrine being acted out in history. Can you say? Uh, or think of it like this, the New Testament is the script, the Old Testament is the movie. And in the movie we see the script being acted out in history. So, you know, the, the famous comment, have you read the Bible? No, but I've seen the film. All right. And that's the picture. The New Testament is doctrine. In the Old Testament, we have that doctrine, that truth, being acted out for us in history. 
pictures of it all over the place. So the New Testament is the script, if you like. The Old Testament is the movie, the ultimate visual aid. Now, the thing is, though, the danger comes in in regards to the Old Testament in that it's, it's such a large canvas, there is so much of it, and it is so packed full of symbolism. I mean, let me explain what I mean. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we looked at Jacob. We were doing a study on brokenness, weren't we? And we were looking at what the New Testament, and indeed Jesus himself, taught about the need to be broken. And we looked back into the Old Testament, and we saw the picture, we saw the story of when Jacob was broken at his thigh by God. Can you see? Now, that was a literal happening, but we saw that the Old Testament, that story, was giving us an acted-out symbol of the truth in the New Testament. So it was history, it actually happened, but it was God, as it were, having the doctrine of brokenness acted out in a kind of a symbolic way in the life of an individual, i.e. Jacob. Now, the danger is that with so many stories and incidents like this, and, and, and with such a massive canvas as we've got in the Old Testament, there's a sense in which you can end up seeing allegories all over the place of absolutely everything and anything, and that the limit is defined only by one's imagination. Can you see the danger? So that one can see quite clearly the symbolism in Jacob's thigh being broken. But when we're dealing with Old Testament stories, obviously the danger is that you can end up reading far more into them than is actually there. Uh, so, I mean, the point is that one could, very convincingly, by using the Old Testament and stuff like that, uh, you could kind of end up drawing conclusions and teaching things from the Old Testament which are actually at variance with the New Testament. Do you see the point? Uh, it can go too far and become fantastical. You can end up going through a story and, you know, and saying that this, you know, this is symbolic of that and this is an allegory for this, that and the other. Can you see? And you can end up drawing the most fantastical conclusions from the Old Testament. But precisely because it is all based on the Old Testament, it can therefore end up sounding very in order and, and sort of biblical. So there's got to be a protection. As soon as someone maintains, as I am, that the Old Testament is, if you like, the New Testament doctrine symbolically acted out in history, all right, then we've got to be very aware of the danger that you can end up forcing symbolism onto the stories that isn't there. And you can then actually end up teaching things which it looks like have come from the Old Testament, but uh, are actually at variance with the New Testament. And you see, the point is that there was a time when the Old Testament was a complete scriptures. At the time of Jesus, the scriptures were the Old Testament. But of course, now the Old Testament isn't the entire scriptures. The complete word of God is the Old Testament plus the New Testament, all right? And each one complements, completes and fulfills the other. So that the truth is, the Old Testament can only be fully and properly understood and interpreted in the light of the New Testament. Can you see the point? Uh, remember, the Old Testament is the movie, but the New Testament is the script. 
But the movie, without the script, makes no sense whatsoever. So everything in the movie has, as it were, got to be kind of checked with the script in the New Testament. So that in some ways, what we're dealing with here, our ground rules that we've got to lay out, are concerned with what you would call <coughs> Old Testament typology. Now, typology is simply when you've got something that's one thing, but it can mean something else. So it stands as a type for something else, all right? Let me give you examples, all right? Um, let's, let's think, for instance, of uh, something um, like the temple. Now, as we're going to see, the temple in the Old Testament is a type of the church, and it's the type of an individual person who's following the Lord. The temple was one thing, but it also represented something else. Now, that is what a type is. That's what symbolism or allegory is all about, all right? So that what we've got in the Old Testament are loads and loads of allegorical stories. Now, they're historical stories. If you get a good book out, a good modern allegory, you'll find that it's not historical, it's a made-up story, and it's an allegory for something. The difference with the Old Testament is that it's not a made-up story at all. It is completely historical, all right? But nevertheless, it is full of allegories and types, things that symbolically point beyond themselves to something else entirely. Now, the ground rules for dealing with Old Testament ty typology is simply this, all right? Anything in the Old Testament that someone maintains is a type of something, all right, must be clearly demonstrable as being in complete agreement with the New Testament as well. Can you see the point? So that any time someone turns in the Old Testament and says, look, here's an Old Testament story, its symbolical meaning is this, 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 and this. What you've got to ask yourself is this meaning that is being drawn out of it, is it consistent with the teaching of the New Testament? If it is, then you're safe. If it isn't, then it's a wrong interpretation. So the point is, let's go back to Jacob, all right? If we're talking about brokenness and then turn to Jacob at Peniel with God breaking his thigh and say that here we have uh, a symbol of brokenness, here we have the doctrine of brokenness being acted out in a man's life in the Old Testament, all right, two things can be said about it. That story, maintaining that what Jacob is going through is a picture of brokenness, maintaining that does not conflict with any New Testament teaching. All right? There's no conflict. And secondly, it is clearly confirmed to be correct by the New Testament because the New Testament teaches about brokenness. So can you see, as soon as someone maintains that an Old Testament story are this is symbolic for that, then whatever that is, it must be something that doesn't go against the New Testament in any way, and it must be something which is con confirmed by the New Testament. I'll give you examples, all right. First of all, I'll give you examples of what I call OK typology, all right, i.e. interpreting the symbolism of the Old Testament in a way that is absolutely kosher, all right. Now, I referred to it a few minutes ago. Take the temple. All right, in Israel, they built the temple. Okay, now I would maintain, along with everyone else who knows their Bible, that the temple is a type of the Christian life. 
both individually as believers and corporately as the church. So then, in the Old Testament, the temple was there and the people went to worship God. So, firstly, it was the temple. That's what it physically was. But I'm maintaining that also it was a symbol of something else that was going to be revealed later. And that something else that was going to be revealed later was the coming of Jesus and following him and being the church. So, let's just test that in the, the New Testament. Go to 2 Corinthians. I'm maintaining that the Old Testament temple was a type or a symbol of the corporate Christian life, i.e. it's a picture of the church. So if you go to 2 Corinthians, and let's see if I'm right. 2 Corinthians and chapter 6. <coughs> and in verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, we read this from Paul. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now can you see, there it is stated explicitly. If somebody says, well the Old Testament temple was ultimately a picture of the church, then here we have it. The fact that when believers come together as the church, they are the temple of God. What was the thing about the temple? God lived there. Where does God live now? In us. Where two or three together, you know, gathered together, there I am, in the midst. So if we're going to say, for instance, the temple, alright, in the Old Testament was a type of the church, here we have it confirmed. But for instance, I also said it was a type of the individual believer. Now, is that okay? Go back into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, and verse 19. And Paul says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Now there, he's talking to individuals. He's not talking to them as a corporate group there. He's saying, individually, each one of you, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, I think that there, can you see, that if I'm to maintain that everything to do with the temple in the Old Testament is a type or a picture of our Christian lives individually and our church life, I think you can see that that passes the test. Because there it is, blatantly confirmed by the New Testament itself. And so the point is that with any symbolism taken from the Old Testament, what you must ask yourself, does this symbolism in any way go against the New Testament? If it does, it's wrong. But if the symbolism is confirmed, i.e. if the truth that comes out of that symbolism agrees with the New Testament, then you've got it right. That is a correct interpretation, alright. Um, I mean, take Israel itself as a nation. Israel in the Old Testament is a picture or type of the church. Now, it's not saying Israel is the church because Israel isn't the church, but it is a picture of the church. It's a type of the church, alright. And in the Old Testament, when you see God's dealings with Israel as a nation, you will see acted out in almost symbolic form 
the way in which God deals with us individually in our lives as individual followers of Jesus. Uh, I mean, go to Galatians. Galatians and find chapter 6 and uh, having made a statement that Israel is a type of the church, let's check that that is absolutely right because if it is, it, the New Testament is going to agree with it. If the New Testament disagrees with it, then it's wrong. Okay, Galatians chapter 6 and um, in verse 16, look what Paul says here. He's writing to Christians. And look how he, he ends the letter. And this is the third from last sentence of the letter. He says, Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule upon the Israel of God. Now, that's not Paul saying that the church is Israel, because the church isn't Israel. Israel is an actual national country, as it were. But what Paul is saying here is confirming that Israel as God's people were indeed a picture of the church as God's people. And indeed, the day is going to come when we'll be, you know, Van Moots, the Lord will take us out of it, and then Israel will step back into the fray and be the means of God's salvation for the world again. So, I mean, are you getting the point about Old Testament typology? As soon as someone is drawing a symbolic truth, as soon as they turn to an historical event in the Old Testament, or an object, be it the temple or whatever, and they start saying it's a picture of this, this, this and this, then the test is that what they're, the conclusions they're drawing must agree fully with the New Testament and must not go against it in any way at all. Because can you see, you can get so let loose in symbolism that ultimately, especially if someone's got a good imagination, the gift of the gap, you can ultimately, you know, ultimately make any event symbolise anything, can't you? Can you see? So there's got to be a test for finding out what is right or wrong. Well, let me move on now to dodgy typology, alright? I.e., uh, I want to give you examples now of teaching that is derived symbolically from the Old Testament, but is then forced into the New Testament when the New Testament doesn't actually teach it. The example that I want to give is primarily the shepherding movement, all right? Uh, now, the shepherding movement, for those of you who don't know, I mean, it's dying out now, but it was a doctrine that became very, very influential, I will say in the early 70s, it was really spreading worldwide. And it was the belief that the setup of the church was basically that you had the Lord at the top as the head of the church, quite right. And then you, you had apostles and prophets, and then you had elders. Uh, now, the point was, it was an hierarchical system. So the idea was, God was in direct contact with the apostle. The, the apostle was in direct contact with the prophet. And between the two of them, they were in direct contract, contact with the local elders of all the churches that they were in charge of. So God spoke to the elders of the local churches, or the shepherds, as they were called. You know, it's fair enough, an elder is a shepherd. Um, so you had God coming through the apostles and prophets, who spoke God's word to the elders of churches. And the individual non-elders in the church, the sheep, got their instructions from God via the elders. Can you see? So you had this hierarchical system coming down and that you could only receive from the Lord via whoever it was who was in the next chain of authority above you. And he in turn was receiving from his next chain of authority. 
and it went up to the apostles, who of course they were getting it from the Lord themselves, but then they would, wouldn't they, can you see? So this kind of system, which left you, really, without an individual relationship with God, can you see? That you, you virtually had no direct contact with the Lord at all. You couldn't move without it being checked out and okay by the elders. Now that <coughs> kind of hierarchical system, a lot of it, a lot of it, was backed up by symbolism and typology taken from the Old Testament. I'll just give you some examples of it, okay. Um, first of all, uh, if you go to um, Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, and um, have a quick look at Moses and Aaron here. Exodus chapter 4, and if you just shove your finger in verse 14. Now, before we actually read this, um, now, the shepherding movement teachers maintained that M Moses was a type or a symbol of church leadership. Now, as far as that goes, I agree with it, because there is, I mean, if you read through the life of Moses, there's so much to learn about leadership, I'll tell you. But the thing that they forget is that when they get into the New Testament, as you read through the New Testament, the question you have to ask is, is leadership in the churches today exactly the same as it was in the time of Moses, or has God since made changes? Now, the answer is, if you go through the New Testament, you'll find that God has made changes and it's slightly different. Well, what they tend to do is, they look at the ministry of Moses and say, right, that's it. I'll give you an example. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, let's just read from verse 14. Now, what's happening here, God is saying, look, Moses, it's, you know, you've done your 40 years in the wilderness, boy, you know, back that, you know, get down to Pharaoh, because, I mean, you know, I'm going to set my people free. And Moses is all ming and ahhing, and he's saying, oh, no, 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 you know, so I can't do it. Let's see it. You know, he, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I stammer and stuff like that. Now, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he says, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well, and behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and I... So I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God. Now, obviously, the shepherding movement actually say, look, this is it. Can't you see your shepherd, the person in direct authority over you, he is as God to you. Because you only receive from God through the person in authority over you. Can you see? Now, this is, uh, you know, I mean, firstly with this, it's to misunderstand the context of the actual verse, because all God is saying is, look, Moses, if you can't open your mouth yourself, I will tell you what needs to be said, and you will just pass it on to Aaron and he'll say it. But can you see the potential misuse of the symbolism here? When God says to Moses, you shall be as God to Aaron. You see? And so the very authoritarian shepherding churches, they kind of latch onto that and they say, right, okay, you know, the average believer in a fellowship, their elders will be as God to them. You can't go making independent moves on your own. Well, I mean, of course, that's crazy because we know from the New Testament you can. Each individual 
is in relationship with God. Jesus primarily wants to speak to each one individually. Now, elders are there to be a help, to be guardians, blah, blah, blah. Of course, all that. But any idea that elders are your contact with God is, goes absolutely against the New Testament. But the shepherding movement latches on. And, of course, eventually, if you keep reading through the story of Moses, uh, eventually his father-in-law said, look, Moses, you're kind of, you know, sort of, you're, you know, your time, you're trying to do too much. You know, you're trying to lead everyone all the time. And so he, he said to Moses, have a, a system of delegated authority. And so Moses ended up at the top of a pyramid system with layers of people below him under authority. Now, at the Old Testament time of Moses, that was good leadership. But that pyramid system that the shepherding movement is so fond of today is not what is taught in the New Testament. And to try and take it from the Old Testament and say, there you are, it's in the Word of God, is absolute folly because it's not taking into account that the New Testament tells us that leadership amongst God's people has changed. All right. And, uh, you know, so can you see that there is an example of Old Testament typology wrongly interpreted and uh, taught as if it was the truth, without taking into account that the New Testament tells us that in many areas God has made certain changes. Uh, another story in the Old Testament, the story between David and Jonathan, uh, I King David. Now, they had an incredibly special relationship. I mean, they, they loved each other almost even more than brothers. I mean, they weren't brothers. Uh, obviously there's an attempt by some Bible commentators to say that really they were gay, which is of course absolutely lunatic, they weren't gay at all. But they became such friends, you know, it was amazing. And they made a covenant between each other that nothing would ever end, their friendship. Now the shepherding movement took that out and said it's a picture of the covenant that you make with each other when you become part of a church. So that what they say is that in a church, every member, if you like, of that church is in a covenant relationship with everybody else. Now, the problem, now, let me say, we are indeed in a covenant relationship with the Lord, right? But the moment you say that you're in covenant relationship with the other people in your church, here's the problem. If you leave that church, you break the covenant, and that's a sin. And that was that kind of symbolism, that picture of the covenant between David and Jonathan was used to say that once you're in a church, to ever leave it is rebellion against God. God has put you there, you've got your shepherds above you, and that is where you must stay, period. Now, the folly of that, it doesn't allow for the fact that one day the Lord might with any one of us to say, you know, actually right now I want you to move somewhere else. Can you see? I mean, any idea that you are bound to be part of any one church and it's a sin to leave it, full stop, is crazy. And again, it's not what the New Testament teaches. So again, it's another example of taking Old Testament typology, bringing it over into the church and putting it on people, and it ends up a terrible mess. One other example. <coughs> We've already seen that Israel as a nation in the Old Testament is a picture of the church. Absolutely true. But as soon as you forget that Israel was completely separate from the church, you get into trouble. Because, for instance, again, I mean, not just the shepherding movement, this is very, very, you know, this teaching 
is winning out now on the spirit-filled scene. And it's the idea that one day the church is virtually going to take over the world. Is he? And uh, that, you know, the second coming will be because the church has virtually taken the whole world for Jesus and uh, when virtually the whole world is Christianized, then Jesus will come again and we will present the kingdom to him. Now, if you speak with people who teach that and say, well, where did you get that idea from? Where they get it from is they say, well, of course, in the Old Testament, you've got all the promises to Israel about all the nations shall pour into Israel and they'll all do homage to Israel and God is going to be, you know, the blessing is going to be on Israel and, and it, you know, Israel's virtually going to control the world. And what they say is, because the church has replaced Israel, which it's true, temporarily we have, they say that all those promises, they're no longer for Israel. Those promises are, sim they're types of what God's going to do in the church. So they say that in the Old Testament it talks about all the nations shall pour into Israel. They're saying that the whole world is going to bow down before the church. Can you see? We're going to kingdomize the whole world. And when we've won the world for Jesus, then Jesus will come again. So what they're doing is they're taking the promises to Israel, which in actual fact are promises which one day are going to be fulfilled, because in the thousand-year reign of Jesus, Jesus is going to reign from Israel and all those thus unfulfilled, you know, sort of things from God to Israel are one day going to be refilled, fulfilled. But what these people say is the church has replaced Israel, so all, all those blessings to Israel, now they apply to the church and they're all symbolic language for the fact that we're virtually going to bring the world to Jesus. Can you see? Now, again, how do we know that's wrong? Because when you turn to the New Testament, you find two things. Number one, you find that the church has only replaced Israel temporarily. Not completely, merely temporarily. The other thing you find out is that the world, according to the New Testament, is going to go from bad to worse. So, you've got people using Old Testament symbolism, I would say wrongly, painting this picture that the church is on the march and the world is going to fall before us. Then you turn to the New Testament and you've got Paul talking about that men, evil men will go from bad to worse. And you look in the New Testament and far from being optimistic about the world becoming Christian, the Bible says that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse and in actual fact it's going to culminate in a rebellion led by the Antichrist such as the world has never seen. But then we discover that just before that happens, the church is raptured and Israel is grafted back in. And eventually Jesus rules for a thousand years and then all the promises are fulfilled. So can you see that is another example of what I would say is dodgy typology. It's very easy to take all the promises to Israel and say these are symbolically promises to the church. Well, how do we know they're not? Well, because the meaning of them is that the church is going to see this great revival that's going to sweep the world until virtually everyone is converted, and then us having won the world for Jesus, we then invite him back to accept the kingdom. But, when we turn to the New Testament, we find the exact opposite. So that is false use of Old Testament symbolism. So can you see, 
The reason I've gone over all that, I, you know, what I would say the fundamental rules for correctly interpreting Old Testament symbolism or typology, the reason I've gone over all that is precisely because as we go through the story of Elijah for the next 14, 15 studies, however many it is, uh, I'm going to be chucking typology at you all over the place. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be sort of like looking into a verse and picking up little stones on the side of the road and saying, this is symbolic of that, and this is, and if we move this pebble here, can you see that little symbol underneath? You see, as we go through this story, we're going to be finding symbolism all over the place. But the question is, I am going to be very, very careful to make sure that I'm only giving you symbolism that is confirmed fully by the New Testament, i.e. I do not intend to give you any dodgy typology. But, nevertheless, you have all got to be aware that you must sit there all the time saying, hmm, is he taking this typology too far? Can you see? Because obviously, whatever I say has got to be tested by the Word of God. All right. So, with everything that I'm doing, because I mean, obviously, if we do New Testament studies, we're going through verses, or maybe we do a subject and it's verses here from Genesis, you know, right through to Revelation. But with this, we're going to be looking at a slice of history, which I'm going to tell you is this is a type of that, and here we have a symbol of what God wants to do in regards to this, that, and the other. So, you've got to be able to test what I'm saying to make sure that I don't at any point go too far. And so, with every bit of symbolism that I give you, you've got to ask this question. Is it in full accord with what the Old Testament and the New Testaments together clearly and undeniably teach elsewhere? Can you see what I mean? That's the question you've got to ask. I.e., Beresford's just told us that this is a picture of that. Well, you've got to ask yourself, is that a doctrine that is clearly, undeniably stated in the Bible. Can you see? And any assertion that I or anyone else makes that comes merely from typology, i.e. you could take any story in the Old Testament and make virtually what you like out of it, <laughs> alright? I mean, obviously you can. That any assertion I make that comes only from symbolism is by definition erroneous, alright? You've got to all the time be saying, is this in accordance with what the rest of the Bible teaches? Remember, the Old Testament is the movie, the New Testament is the script, and the two of them will totally agree. Think of it like this, can you imagine going to a screening of Star Wars, but the soundtrack is Casablanca? Can you, it would not fit, would it? Now, so therefore, that's the test um, that you've got to apply. So, I have now given you protection against any potential waywardness of mine in regards to this series. I mean, oh no, I mean, who else would do that? I mean, what, what other Bible teacher do you know who would start a series by telling you how to protect yourselves from him? Dear, oh dear. Right. Okay, so, I mean, we've covered that. that there, the ground rules. So, basically, back to where we were, what we've got here, <coughs> God's people are in a right old mess. That is the context of the story of Elijah. Leaders and people alike, alright, 
are straying from God's revealed word wherever it suits them to. Um, we have here God's chosen people, Israel, 3,000 odd years ago, badly out of fellowship with God and desperately in need of a major sorting out and repentance trip. All right? That's the scene we've read in these verses. Now, I put it to you that you could not get a better picture of the Church of Jesus Christ in 1992. That is my contention, which I hope to demonstrate to you. But even now, you might be sitting there thinking about, oh, well, he started off over the top, so I'm just going to ignore the rest of this series. But I put it to you. God's people straying from his revealed word whenever it suits them. I put it to you that that is a picture of the church at large today in 1992. So we've got to now ask, right, there's the mess so, how does God go about unmessing this terrible mess that was called Israel? <laughs> right. How is it that God goes about putting the situation right? Now, we're going to be looking at the story of Elijah, the prophet Elijah. And in answer to the situation, quite simply, God raises up a man. When God wants to sort something out, he raises a person up to sort it out through. But notice, he doesn't raise up an angel. You know, I mean, when we get to chapter 17, verse 1, next week, we won't be reading, you know, that the angel, the, you know, the archangel Gabriel landed northwest of Jerusalem and proceeded to the trouble zone to sort it out. We won't be reading that. God doesn't raise up an angel. He raises up a man. And also, as we're going to see in the life of Elijah, um, he doesn't raise up a super saint either. He raises up an ordinary man. Because I put it to you, ordinary men and women are all God's got, because ordinary men and women are all there are. I mean, you know, I am not a believer in super saints or spiritual giants. I mean, I believe that honour, where honour is due, when you have men and women who are so sold out to the Lord that they are singularly used, yeah. But if you were put it to them, does this mean that you're a spiritual giant? They'll say, I'm dust, I'm nothing. So I don't believe in, in super saints, I don't believe in spiritual giants. Elijah was an ordinary, run-of-the-mill bloke. Just like you, just like me. Perhaps not too much like Jane, Sue and Belinda, because they're not blokes, but do you get the point? God doesn't raise up an angel, he doesn't raise up a super saint, he just uses an ordinary bloke. Keep your finger in there, but go to James, the epistle of James, where we need to read something, and we've got to get Elijah right from the start, because if we don't get it right from the start, we're going to end up labouring under illusions about him. <coughs> James chapter 5, the last chapter. And let's read verse 17. James chapter 5 and verse 17. Now here is James referring to Elijah. Now, what does he say? Elijah 
was a man of like nature with ourselves. Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves. So what James is saying here, there was nothing special about Elijah of himself. He was no different to you, me, anyone else. And here, this word nature uh, in the Greek is homeopathies. It's where we get the word homeopathy from. Uh, and it, it means feelings and affections. It's talking here about his emotions. And what, what he's saying, look, Elijah had the same feelings as the rest of us. He was no different to us. And it's vitally important that we understand that. Elijah was ordinary like you and me. It was his God who was extraordinary through him. Now, we're going to see that Elijah did live a very extraordinary life. But it wasn't because he was extraordinary. He was ordinary. But he had an extraordinary God living through him. Elijah was not special. I mean, all of us are special. I mean, we're all God's children. Each one of us is individually special to the Lord. Let's glance over and just look at how Sue's beaming at little Samuel there, because he's special. And each one of us individually are special to the Lord. Yeah, that is unique. But there was nothing special, special about Elijah. Uh, he, he was not on some higher spiritual plane. He was a weak, sinful individual, just like the rest of us. And it's vitally important that we understand that, because what's the point of going through the life of Elijah to try and learn from it, if from the outset we think, well, he was, he was sailing so spiritually high that I can't begin to identify with him? That'd be a dead duck from the start. We're going to see in this series how much we can identify with him. My goodness! What a mess he got into sometimes. You'll be amazed about the bloke. There was nothing special, but there is something tremendously distinctive about him. And this something distinctive made him different from the vast majority of God's other people at the time. So Elijah was not special. He was an ordinary Joe like the rest of us. But there was something distinctive about him that made him different from the vast majority of the other of God's people at the time. And it was simply this. Elijah was really sold out to the Lord. That was the only difference between him and the rest of God's people at the time. Elijah was really sold out to the Lord. But then any of us can be as well. Can you say? When someone is really sold out to the Lord, that may make them distinctive, but it doesn't make them special, because anyone can be. So what we have here in Elijah is an ordinary bloke of the same affections, emotions, ups and downs, the same as the rest of us. But we're going to see that he was used so singularly by the Lord because he was absolutely sold out to the Lord, just like we can be. The most distinctive thing about Elijah, actually, is his name. Now you've got to understand that <coughs> in the ancient world, and, and to this day in the East, names are tremendously significant, far more 
you know, sort of far more than names are today, but, but, but certainly, you know, amongst Israel in the ancient world, uh, your, your name was meant to say something. And in actual, Elijah was a prophet, but we have a prophetic declaration in his very name. The name Elijah means Jehovah is God. That's what his name means. Jehovah, or Yahweh, big argument about that historically, alright, but forget that. It's either Jehovah or Yahweh. A purely grammatical problem, alright. Well, nothing to do with the authority of the Bible, but it's how you interpret certain words, in, you know, in the ancient Hebrew. But the point was, he was, his name meant Jehovah is God. At a time when idolatry was rife amongst God's people, and they were believing in lots of gods, Elijah was born and his name was Jehovah is God. Now, he was a weak, sinful man, the same as we are, but he longed for his God to be recognised by all. That was the longing of his heart, for God to be glorified. He could see all these false gods that were no gods at all. They were the figments of man's imagination as the result of the activity of demons in their minds. And they were taking from his God his glory. And Elijah burned for people to see the one true God and to know that there was only one and that that God was the Lord God of Israel. That is what Elijah was all about. He was a weak, sinful man, but he was willing to pay the price of his part in God's glory being restored. Can you see the point? He was willing to pay the price. Now, surely that makes, or that puts us in a position of that there's a right here and now decision for each one of us to make, isn't there? We've seen that, you know, I mean, sort of like Elijah was really sold out to the Lord. He was prepared to pay the price. Well, that, those very statements that here, the first study of this series, brings us to decision time. And yet, in another sense, maybe it doesn't. And for this reason, Maybe it might be better to wait till we've got to the end of this series when we've seen a bit more clearly what the price is. <laughs> Can you see? Dramatic, fast decisions are not really any help at all. The decisions that Jesus likes are the ones that have been thought out, okay? And, oh boy, in this, are we going to see what the cost of being all out for God and his glory is. Because you see, one way or the other, I mean, yeah, it, it'll be different from us than for Elijah in the sense that we're in a different day and age in a different time. But the principles, somehow, one way or the other, it's going to be the same for us. Uh, just go to Luke, Luke chapter 14. Something that Jesus said. <coughs> Luke chapter 14. And if you find verse 25. Now then, ask yourself, in the weeks to come, uh, is Elijah the Old Testament acting out of this, what Jesus said? Let's just read it. Great multitudes accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. He can be born again, he can be saved, he can be headed for glory, but he can't be a disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, because the Lord knows how to deal with each one of us individually, it's not going to be the same for you as it is for me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bear a cross, when Jesus bore a cross, what did he do? Carried it to the top of the hill and got nailed on it and died. So if you want to take the cross, that's what God's going to do to you on it. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and take counsel whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and asks terms of peace. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, that is the price to pay, ultimately, in whatever way it works out in an individual's life, because it's not the same for everyone, the Lord knows how to deal with each one of us, but that, nevertheless, what Jesus said, is the price for being sold out to God and being jealous of God's glory, and being willing to be a vessel that God can use in order to bring his wayward people back to him. All right? So, um... You know, and here Jesus is saying, look, before you build a tower, you sit down, you do your budget, you make sure you've got enough money. Uh, before you go and fight a war, you sit down, you do a war cabinet inventory, and you make sure you've got enough soldiers, enough guns or spears or whatever. Because if you start acting on that decision, building towers, fighting wars, before you're sure you've got everything you need for it, you're going to come unstuck. Now, the application for us is quite simply this. If we address ourselves with right, we're going to see an Elijah man sold out to God, willing to pay the price. Now, the thing about Elijah, he paid the price. Oh boy, are we going to see how he paid the price? Now, it's really this old Lord, I'm willing to pay the price. But sometimes one's got to sit down and do what you might call a soul budget. You see what I mean? And you say, right, am I really willing to be humbled? Oh, it's easy to say I'm willing to be humbled, but am I really willing? Am I prepared to put that on the line? I've got to think about this, because if I give it to God, he might just take it. Oh, no, hang on a sec. And as you go through the budget, you, you, you begin to really find out whether you're willing to be sold out or not. And... Uh, let me say that those who aren't are the losers. But, uh, you know, we've got to be very aware following the Lord all out is something that is not easy. And Jesus certainly wants his people to count the cost. According to this teaching of Jesus here, even family comes second. Jesus and Jesus alone comes first. Now, on Sunday, the 3rd of November, 1991, 
Aha. The Lord spoke to us as a church in a prophet. I don't expect any of you to remember it, but I did, and, and, and it's important. And what the Lord said to us, what, oh, nearly a year ago, isn't it? You know, sort of just, what, three, three weeks short of a year ago. What the Lord was saying was that signs and wonders and his power will come. But in the prophecy, he said, first holiness. First, I'm going to deal with you. And here's a quote from that prophecy. The Lord said, say no to yourselves and you say yes to me. Now that's the way of holiness. That's the way of discipleship. We say yes to the Lord by saying no to ourselves. So, as you over the next weeks do your, your soul budget, obviously just, you know, kind of like, you know, bear, you know, sort of bear this in mind. Now, Elijah, as we're going to see, he had a ministry. He, he, the, the yearning of his heart was to reveal the one true God to those around him. And, and, of course, the point is, as believers, you and I, as individuals, have exactly the same ministry. We are here to reveal our God to those around us. Um, but what we do need to understand here is that Elijah's ministry was declared in his name. Do you remember? Jehovah is God. So, Elijah's mission in life, as a believer, was actually declared in his name. And in the ancient world, you were your name, all right? Now, <laughs> what we need to bring out is this. What we see here in Elijah is that his ministry and his life were one. It's tremendously important, i.e., it's all very well as Christians to be, you know, declaring the word of God and stuff like that, evangelizing or whatever. That's brilliant, known to be Christians. Wonderful, fantastic. It's all very well doing that as part of our ministry as believers. That's great. But let me say there's not a lot of point doing it if our lives are not consistent with our ministry. You see? Uh, I mean, Christianity today, you know, especially on the charismatic scene, it's very ministry-oriented. I mean, you've probably heard me tonight use the word ministry for the first time in months. And I'm only you. I, I don't like the word. I think it's horrible. But I'm using it because I can't use any other in this context. But on, on the scene today, it's, hey, brother, what's your ministry? Well, let me tell you, I don't give a fig what your ministry is. I don't give a fig what my ministry is, and neither does the Lord. He's interested in my life. Is he? Ministry, purpose, what God uses us to do, must come out of our lives. It's no use um, sort of like going ahead as a Christian and being used by God if that ministry, inverted commas, is at variance with the way we actually live. You see, we must be what we declare. We must be the sort of people where if somebody says, look, don't, I'm not interested in what you say so much as I'm interested in what you do, then we should be able to open the doors of our lives, let them have a good look and say, oh yes, you are doing the same as you're saying. Can you see? That is the ultimate witness to people who are around us. And of course, what really counts as Christians is not what we say, it's not what we do, it's what we are and that is what God is primarily interested in his prime interest in us is not what he can use us to accomplish 
not what gifts he can give us. I mean, all that is important. He'll do that. But his main interest is, what sort of person is this my child? What changes do I need to make in this my child so that they'll become a child that I am pleased to have rather than a child who's just all the time in absolute rebellion? And that is why we're going to see how drastically God dealt with Elijah in order to prepare him. Because God wants the way we live to agree with our ministry. He wants our lives to agree with what we do and what we say. Our service to God must come out of our surrender to him. You see what I mean? It's quite possible, believe me, to be surrendered to God in the sense of, well, use me, Lord, and out there doing your ministry thing. And yet your life is so unsubmitted to God, it's unbelievable. I've been there myself. I mean, God had to, you know, sort of give me frequent and intense kickings for many years. And, uh, you know, we're going to see how God deals with uh, Elijah, and it's drastic. But God must deal with us drastically as well. All right. Remember... To sum up Elijah, it was all in his name, Jehovah is God. He was his name. And oh boy, did he pay the price for a name like Elijah. Uh, <coughs> incidentally, my name, Job, my surname, means hated and persecuted. Beresford, my Christian name, means absolutely nothing because none of the books that report names have ever heard of it. So Beresford is an absolute mystery. What you can conclude about that, you know, I suppose I'm an enigma who is hated and persecuted, presumably. But uh, in the Old Testament, names were tremendously important. So what you've got to underline at this point as one of the foundational truths that we're going to be seeing in this series is quite simply this. God uses ordinary, weak, sinful people who are willing to sell out to him and pay the price. So, if you want to be used by God, in whatever way God wants to, I mean, if you thought, oh yeah, I want to be a, I want to be a Billy Graham. I mean, be daft, we can't all be Billy Grahams, can we? But I mean, <coughs> the point is, however it is God wants to really use you in your life, okay, in order for that to come into being, don't think that you've got to be something special. God uses ordinary, weak, sinful people who sell out to him, are willing to pay the price and let God deal with him. There are no big men and women for God. And if you look on the Christian scene today, it is so personality-oriented I've, I find it frightens me sometimes. I'd see Christians, I have seen Christians looking up at people who are used by God with virtual wonder in their eyes. I've had it done to me. I hate someone, they're not here anymore, they don't come to this fellowship anymore, but someone who came to this fellowship actually said to Belinda, I think Beresford is awesome. And I mean, it, that is, it's, you know, that is so daft and crazy. Now, there are two things that need to be addressed here. One, people who are used by God in leadership, they can put themselves up on pedestals, and that stinks. That stinks. But also, you can be put on pedestals by people, even though you don't want to be. <laughs> 
You know, and I mean, that's tough as well. Because there are two types of people. There are some people, their sinful natures want to be out there leading from the front, you know, or I'm in charge. But there are other people, the bent of their sinful nature is that they don't like making decisions, so they just want to lollop at the feet of someone else who they think is awesome or something like that. You make all my decisions for me. And that is just pure escapism. You know, because if you only do what a leader tells you, then when things go wrong, you can say, well, it was his fault, he told me. Can you see? It's a cop-out. But the point is, there should never be personality orientation when it comes to ministry. Everything we do should be encouraging each other and others to look to the Lord. Yeah, by all means, we do everything we can to help each other. Of course, we're going to go to each other for help, but we've got to make sure that we're always directing people to Jesus. We've really got to make sure that we understand this. There are no big men or women, regardless of the Christian books you read, regardless of what you see in the Christian media, there is no such thing as a big man or a big woman for God. We are all dust. There are no special believers. There are no super saints. There are no spiritual giants. And it's as simple as that. But there are, there are, and each one of us can be one of them if we want, there are specks of dust filled with a big, super, special, giant Lord God. Now, can you see the difference? There's no big men and women for God, but there are specks of dust who are filled with a big God. But they're only going to be filled with him to the extent that they have first been emptied of themselves. So if we really want to be those who are used by God to the full in whatever way he wants to, let's remember that you don't have to, you know, sort of sit there thinking, well, I'm no one special, but how can God use me? That's crazy. That's escapism. That is sin, actually. That attitude is sin. Because it's kind of believing that it depends on us. It doesn't. It doesn't. There's no special people. Oh, but boy, do we have a special God. And his name is Jesus. And where does he live? In us. He lives in us with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, we're specks of dust, but filled with a big God like that. Oh boy, how God can use us in whatever way he wants. But it will never be because we're special. It will simply be because he is so special in us. But what we've got to remember the whole time, we can only be as filled with the life of the Lord as we are emptied of ourselves there will always be a, a, a mathematical equation here. The extent to which you are emptied of yourself, to that extent, and that extent alone and no more, you can be filled with the Lord. And to that extent which you are filled with yourself, to that extent, you're going to be filled with the Lord. Little bit. Can you say? Well, we're going to be seeing how God takes Elijah and empties him to the last dregs of his, what at times we're going to be see as a miserable existence. Because there are times when it ain't no fun following the Lord.
But it is worth it. It is worth it. So next time we actually begin the narrative, we see Elijah coming on the scene, and uh, what we're going to see immediately next week, and oh boy, what a way to start, is Elijah tapping Ahab on the shoulder and saying, excuse me, could I just have a little word with you, please, King? <laughs> so we'll get to there next time. <laughs>